The war between Russia and Ukraine has been going on for just over a month, and we are starting to get glimmers of how it might end. The battlefield situation is becoming less fluid, talks are underway, and while the parties are still far apart, the parameters of possible deals are starting to come out. It's too soon to know how much longer the war will go on or how it will end, but it's not too soon to think about some of the factors that help or hinder an eventual agreement. I'm Ken Schultz, a professor of political science at Stanford University. My research focuses on understanding why wars start, which as we'll see has important implications for how they end. I find that a useful starting point for thinking about these questions is a set of ideas collectively referred to as the bargaining model of war. This theory starts with the idea that war is an instrument that states use to achieve certain goals, such as acquiring territory, changing an adversary's policies, or removing threats to a country's security. But it also emphasizes that no matter what goals countries seek, war is a very costly way to go about it. War imposes horrendous human, material, and psychological costs on all sides. So one would think that states would be better off finding some negotiated bargain that allows them to avoid those costs. So the primary question this logic poses is, why does bargaining between states sometimes fail to reach a mutually beneficial agreement? Why can't they make a deal that's better than fighting? While this question focuses on how wars start, we can also turn the same lens to the question of how they end. If war occurs, how do the adversaries reach a settlement when they could not reach one beforehand? What does warfare do to make possible deals that were not possible before? So identifying some of the problems that led to war in the first place helps us think about how it might end. And now there are obviously lots of potential problems that can be devil international bargaining, but I'm going to focus on two that are prominent in the literature. The first are what we call information problems. Information problems arise when the adversaries don't have good information about the factors that will determine the outcome of a war. Who will win? and What will the costs be? As the war between Russia and Ukraine shows, it can often be hard to know ahead of time what will happen. It's easy to count tanks and planes and missiles, but results on the battlefield depend on so much more. The quality of the war plans and leadership, the performance of new technologies, the motivations of the soldiers, the willingness of the populations and their leaders to make sacrifices. It's clear that Russian leaders overestimated their chances and underestimated how hard Ukraine would fight back and the level of external support it would get. This kind of overconfidence is dangerous because it can lead a country to make extensive demands that its adversary cannot be compelled to accept. So one thing that war does is that it reveals information about the many factors that affect battlefield outcomes. Over the last month of fighting, Russia has learned something about its military prowess and presumably has more realistic assessments about what, what it can and can't achieve and at what cost. In principle, it should lower its demands, and we may already be seeing that as Russia seems to have dropped its insistence on regime change in Kyiv. A deal may come into sight as previously incompatible bargaining positions start to converge. But this learning process can be imperfect because leaders have a, may have a hard time absorbing bad news. We're hearing reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin is not getting great information from his underlings about how things are going, and this is a common problem in dictatorial regimes. And for both political and psychological reasons, he may be reluctant to change course. Not surprisingly, there's good evidence that wars become more likely to end after the leaders who started them are removed, though that still seems unlikely here. But there is, in my view, an even more serious obstacle to peace, and this lies in what we call commitment problems. Commitment problems arise when two sides might agree that some deal is preferable to war, but they do not trust that the other side will live by the deal. We saw this prior to the invasion when Russia made a number of demands on the United States and NATO to guarantee that they would not admit Ukraine or use Ukrainian territory in a way that threatened Russian interests. 
So Russia demanded, for example, that NATO pull its forces back from the Central and Eastern European countries that were added to the alliance after the Cold War. The problem is that by reducing NATO's ability to support Ukraine or to defend NATO members on Russia's, Russia's periphery, there was a risk that Russia would exploit that concession by making greater demands on those states. In other words, how could NATO trust Russia's commitment not to invade anyway after making it easier for them to do so? The same commitment problem bedevils talks to end the war. Reportedly, Russia is demanding that Ukraine agree to neutrality and limits on its military and the kinds of assistance it can receive from other countries. But what guarantee is there that Russia would not exploit those concessions to restart its military operation in the future? How do you get a deal that both satisfies Russia's demands and does not leave Ukraine vulnerable to further demands? Now, in the short run, it may be that the war has alleviated this problem. Russia has not only learned about how tough Ukraine is to beat, but it has also incurred serious losses to its personnel, leadership, and equipment. It may be that Russia is in no position to resume hostilities for a while. But in the long run, the commitment problem remains, and it's a tricky one. The Russian military will recover and adapt, and Putin's actions and words give his neighbors reason to fear that he would try again if presented with the opportunity. Ukraine is understandably worried that any meaningful security concessions will leave it vulnerable to the next attack. Where will its guarantees come from? Now, a usual answer is that guarantees need to come from the outside, such as third-party states that pledge to defend Ukraine or a peacekeeping operation from the United Nations or another regional security organization. Both of these solutions have worked in some context, but it's not clear how effective they will be against Russia. Who will credibly promise to defend Ukraine if there is a next time? Ultimately, then, any settlement of this war needs to anticipate how to deter the next one. Otherwise, we may end up with a ceasefire and a temporary truce, but not a durable peace. Thanks for listening.